What were the goals behind the assault on Libya 10 years ago? What are the broader implications of the assault on sovereignty throughout Africa? Who generated the pretext for a humanitarian war? How did slavery of the black African migrant population get started? What memories are preserved in the mind of one correspondent among several left stranded during the thick of the conflict? This week on the Global Research News Hour, on the 10th anniversary of the NATO-based assault on Libya, we attempt to unravel what happened during and since the war and where this leaves the Libyan people and the wider content today. We first speak with Abiyobi Azakiwe of Pan-African Newswire about the motives of the West and their failure to control the situation and how the future looks for the country. Then, in the second half hour, Madi Nazamroya makes his return to the show, elaborating on what he experienced there during the war and how the country will prevail despite the devastation of this war. On this week's program, The Ides of March, Part 2, NATO's Humanitarian War on Libya, the people survived 10 years after its launch. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 19, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied in Ishinabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Ahead of Thursday's meeting, Blinken and U.S. War Secretary Lloyd Austin are visiting Japan and South Korea through Wednesday for discussions focused on China and North Korea, non-belligerent nations threatening no one. Last Friday, Biden's double participated in a virtual summit with leaders of India, Japan, and Australia, so-called Quad Nations. Their meeting discussed in a Monday article. Their alliance is all about countering China's growing prominence regionally and worldwide. The U.S. seeks to undermine Beijing's political, economic, technological, and military development, what failed so far and is highly unlikely to fare better ahead. Regional instability, to the extent that it exists, is because of Washington's imperial presence, is a rejection of peace, stability, and cooperative relations with all nations regionally and worldwide. That comes from the article, Upcoming Sino-U.S. Talks in Alaska, by Stephen Lendman, posted March 17th. From the east bank of the Bosphorus to Tokyo Bay, it accounts for half of global economic output and more than half the world's population. And this is growing. Within its geography, it has the world's two most populous nations, 
China and India, and the second and third largest economies in the world, China and Japan, as well as the world's largest democracy, India. The Asia pivot is a tantalizing prospect, but how well has lockdown London thought this through? That comes from the article, Britain's Pivots to Asia to Contain China, Imperial Overreach, Wishful Thinking and Delusion, by Tom Clifford, posted March 17th. There are reports that Turkey, after sending militants to Azerbaijan and Libya, is now priming to send Syrian mercenaries to Yemen. They are to fight on behalf of the Saudi-led coalition against Ansar Allah. In case of emergency, Iran is likely to provide the Houthis with some more support in the form of weapons and hardware, as it has done repeatedly in the past. On March 15th, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps revealed a brand new advanced missile site, which is essentially an underground city. Iranian state media dubbed it an advanced missile city containing cruise and ballistic missiles able to hit targets at multiple ranges and with a 360-degree firing radius. That comes from the article, Video, the Houthis continue their push, but is Erdogan coming to the Saudi Kingdom's rescue? By South Front, posted March 17th, originally published at South Front. 45% of Americans now say China is the greatest enemy of the U.S., more than double the percentage who said so in 2020. That year, Americans were equally as likely to say either China or Russia was the U.S.'s greatest enemy. The current shift coincided with a period when the global economy and human activity were severely impacted by the coronavirus pandemic, which originated in China. The February 3rd to 18th poll also finds favorable views of China among U.S. adults falling for the second straight year, putting the figure at a historically low 20%. The rise in perceptions of China as the United States' greatest enemy is accompanied by a sharp decline since 2020 in those mentioning Iran, down 15 percentage points to 4%, as well as 4 to 5 point declines in mentions of Iraq and North Korea, and smaller declines in a handful of other countries. That comes from the article, New High in Americans' Perceptions of China as U.S.'s Greatest Enemy, by Mohammed Yunus, posted March 17th, originally published in Gallup. Today, the rejuvenated Syrian armed forces have restored government control over much of its territory, with only Idlib province remaining as a last bastion of the Islamists who once threatened to raise the black flag of their movement over Damascus. But chaos still reigns. Northeastern Syria remains under Turkish and U.S. occupation, with these two ostensible allies fighting a proxy war of sorts over the future of the Syrian Kurds living there. The Islamic State, whose dreams of caliphate were destroyed by the combined efforts of the Syrian government, Iran, Iraq, Russia, and the United States, continues to exist as an ideology capable of motivating tens of thousands of sympathizers to carry out terrorist attacks in support of their cause. 
And Israel is engaged in an increasingly hot war inside Syria to drive the forces of Iran and Hezbollah out of Syrian territory. The primary facilitator of this chaos is the United States. Even after the intervention of Russia in September 2015 closed the door on any hope for regime change in Syria, the U.S. continues to push the same failed formula, but this time expanding its scope and scale to include the goal of getting Russia and Iran to cease their support for the Assad government by making the cost of their continued presence in Syria too high. That comes from the article, Ten Years On, the U.S. Still Promotes Failed Regime Change Policy in Syria, by Scott Ritter, posted March 17th, originally published at RT Op-Ed. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour. As of the first date that this show goes to air, it will have been 10 years since the NATO started dropping bombs on Libya, only two days since the no-fly zone was instituted by the UN. This conflict continued for seven more months. Eventually, Muammar Gaddafi was attacked by the counter-revolutionary forces and assassinated brutally. Since his fall, everything in the country has gone wrong, at worse. We want to see the role of, of France, the United States, and the West in orchestrating the attack and the gains and losses as measured today. Joining me to discuss this subject is Abeyomi Azikiwe. He's the editor of the Pan-African Newswire, an electronic press agency that was founded in 1998. The Pan-W represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African affairs. Uh, Welcome again, uh, Abeyomi Azikiwe. Thank you for the invitation. Now, um, the humanitarian gains at the time were being stressed then. It wasn't very credible then, and and it certainly isn't now. Could you outline what were the true strategic roles of the countries involved uh, to understand what guided Europe and the United States into launching the attack in uh, the spring of 2011? Well, it was a concerted effort uh, by numerous uh, NATO countries and their allies in the region uh, to overthrow uh, the government in Libya and to seize uh, its assets and to impose a client uh, regime uh, in Tripoli. Now, it failed uh, miserably uh, because uh, the resistance uh, of the Libyan people uh, to uh, what uh, the U.S.-led effort uh, was uh, carrying out. And then, of course, uh, there was uh, the fracturing of the armed opposition groups 
uh, which were funded and coordinated and given diplomatic cover uh, by Washington, London, uh, Brussels, and, their, and Paris uh, and their allies in the region. Uh, that was the underlying reason. And then of course, Libya being an oil rich country, it was also a country that uh, virtually owed no money uh, to the IMF, the World Bank, or the international financial institutions, which had uh, over $170 billion in a uh, sovereign wealth fund, uh, which was seized uh, by the imperialists uh, during the course of uh, 2011. And then a strategic location uh, right uh, at uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, it's a gateway uh, to other uh, countries of North and uh, West Africa. And Libya, of course, uh, had been a center of the uh, imperialist efforts during World War II. Uh, in uh, 1943, uh, when uh, Britain and uh, the US uh, were involved in trying to uh, defeat uh, the Italians and the uh, German fascists in North Africa, they constructed a air base, the Wheelers Air Base in Libya and it played a very important role uh, militarily uh, in the region. Prior to that, uh, Libya had uh, been a center of imperialist war and conquests uh, from 1911 to 1931. And uh, of course, uh, 1922, Mussolini had taken over and established the first uh, fascist government uh, in Europe, uh, 11 years prior to uh, the ascendancy of uh, Adolf Hitler. So yes, Libya uh, historically, uh, well over a century has been a uh, focal point uh, for imperialist uh, intrigue. And now uh, what we see, uh, of course, after a decade of genocidal warfare, uh, beginning on February 17th of 2011, and then with the UN uh, Security Council sanctioning on March 19th of 2011, and the blanket bombing of the country, uh, the theft of its wealth, the embargo in terms of arms and economic trade and resources. And then of course the fracturing of the opposition groups and the concomitant uh, civil war uh, that has gone on for the last decade, the country has been virtually brought to its knees. And uh, now we have yet another uh, United Nations Security Council engineered interim government uh, in Libya that was actually uh, chaired and endorsed yesterday in Tripoli. And uh, perhaps we can talk about that as well, because this, uh, in my opinion, does not pretend well uh, for the future of the country, because we've seen the same process uh, fail uh, beginning in 2015 as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, certainly. I, I mean, I, I, I just want to maybe you know, resurrect a little bit about Muammar Gaddafi himself. I mean, all that he'd contributed over the last uh, 40 or the over the 41 year period that he'd been uh, leading the country. You just remind us briefly how how his uh, his efforts contributed to the overall uh uh, f forces within Libyan society? 
Yeah, well, after uh, World War II, uh, there was an independence uh, in Libya uh, in 1951 under a monarchy. And the country was largely underdeveloped uh, despite its tremendous uh, oil wealth and strategic uh, geopolitical positioning. And then of course, uh, when the uh, Revolutionary uh, Council took over in 1969, Libya declared itself an anti-imperialist country uh, they attempted to normalize relations with Egypt, which was then uh, headed by Gamal Abdel Nasser, who died there the following year. Uh, they broke relations uh, with uh, Israel, and they also um, uh, told the United States that they had to dismantle uh, the Wheelers Air Base. Uh, so Libya was always a uh, thorn in the side of the imperialist countries. And then uh, utilizing the oil wealth of the country, and it's uh, anti-imperialist politics. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, and uh, his supporters were able to build up the country uh, to the most prosperous and developed uh, state in Africa, uh, rivaling even states in, um, in Europe. Uh, in fact, uh, being in a position to loan money uh, to uh, political figures in France and in Italy, Italy being their former colonizer of Libya. And also, they funded a lot of uh, the national liberation movements in Africa and around the world, uh, trained them. Uh, it was also a center for international solidarity conferences. Uh, so Libya really was a, uh, a, 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 a very, very important country uh, as far as the uh, movement against imperialism, for Pan-Africanism, uh, for Pan-Arabism, and for socialism. And uh, th that is another reason why it was considered a threat uh, to Western uh, plans. And at the same time that uh, they launched this counter-revolution in Libya, they also did a similar situation in Syria. So 2011 was a, a very, very important year in terms of uh, uh, reactionary politics. And, and this was done under the uh, Obama administration, uh, which had come in on the heels of the George Bush uh, George W. Bush Jr. administration. Uh, and there was a lot of anti-war sentiment in the United States, uh, but they subverted that uh, by claiming that there was human rights violations in the Eastern part of the country and that there was genocide uh, uh, going to happen if they didn't intervene. And all of this, of course, was never substantiated. It was all a fabrication as was the uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and the Al-Qaeda um, threat in Afghanistan. And uh, the problem is these wars are still going on. You still have US troops in Syria. Uh, you still have uh, US uh, forces uh, intervening in Libya. You still have the United Nations Security Council engineering a new interim government. And the instability in uh, particularly West Africa has worsened over the last decade. If you look at the situation in Mali, in Niger, in Burkina Faso, and in Chad, as well as in Nigeria. Uh, you can trace it right back uh, to developments in Libya uh, that occurred in uh, 2011. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you mentioned earlier how uh, in, in Tripoli, the, uh, so much had been taking place and, and so, so much you, from the standpoint of, of outside forces has seems to be... Um, 
you know, taking us in a, in a, a wrong direction. Even Barack Obama said that uh, it was uh, you know the worst, the biggest mistake of his presidency. Uh, and and yeah. so it's, it's not like people didn't tell him it was a mistake at the time. He refused to listen uh, because I know uh, myself and a lot of uh, colleagues uh, and comrades in this country in 2011, uh, you know, spoke out against the war and demonstrated against the war and he completely ignored it. So um, that's a very disingenuous statement. Mm-hmm. Although at the same time, uh, there was a, a lot, I mean, among Af- the African-Americans, there was you know, the highest support among Africans, uh, 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 among them than uh, among other uh, generations of, uh, or of, of, well, the highest ever <laughs> support by African-American for it. Uh, at the same time, you know, probably related to uh, Barack Obama's uh, uh, heritage, but uh, you know, when you looking looking forward with with all of these uh, uh, disasters, um, you know, and and Muammar Gaddafi's ability to to take the territorial uh, terrain and, and sort of keep them in check, how, how are they going to move forward? You know, are they going to is it going to come down to eventually some kind of sectarianism or how, how can you, how, how can outside forces, the UN and so forth, uh, working with a, a puppet be able to retrieve this situation in any way? Well, this is the major issue uh, involving Libya uh, because um, they attempted this uh, on several occasions. Uh, if we look at 2011, uh, that was an attempt to set up a client regime. When that failed in uh, 2015, uh, they set up another one. And then, of course, there was a conflict uh, between uh, Khalifa, Haftar, and uh, the Siraj government in Tripoli, uh, which lasted uh, about four years, which reached a military and political stalemate. And uh, there was now uh, an attempt, there is now an attempt uh, to reconstruct, you know, another uh, interim government. And uh, this government uh, is headed by Mohammed Yunus Menfi. Uh, He heads the presidential council in Libya. And uh, there's a prime minister, Abdul Hamid uh, Beba, uh, who is ostensibly the head of the government. And uh, the Tunisian president, neighboring Tunisia, uh, Kais Saeed, uh, he met uh, yesterday in Tripoli uh, with the, uh, this UN brokered interim uh, regime in Libya. And uh, some of the discussion, of course, centered around trade because prior to the counter-revolution under Gaddafi, uh, even though t- Tunisia and Libya had uh, different political uh, systems and economic systems, uh, they had a trade uh, volume of $1.2 billion annually, US dollars annually. And that's deteriorated uh, by some uh, 70, 80% over the last decade. There's also uh, was a question of uh, two Tunisian journalists that had disappeared in Eastern Libya in 2014 and they've never been accounted for. Uh, the Islamic State, uh, which the antecedents of, the predecessors of were used in 2011 to overthrow the Gaddafi government. These are people who the United States claims are terrorists, uh, but they're willing to arm them uh, to fight, uh, to carry out their foreign policy objectives. ISIS uh, said they, uh, that they had killed 
uh, these two Tunisian journalists. Uh, so, and this was the first visit by Tunisia uh, in um, nine years to Libya. This is a neighboring country and there's been no diplomatic exchange in nine years. Uh, now, Tunisia had hosted the talks in November for creating this Libyan political forum, but it remains to be seen exactly uh, what the outcome of this is going to be. And uh, with the international involvement uh, from the US, uh, France, uh, Britain, Italy, uh, Russia, uh, Turkey, uh, we'll have to see how things uh, turn out. There's supposed to be elections in December uh, where there'll be uh, an elected uh, government in Libya. Uh, so we'll be monitoring the situation very closely. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I guess one more question uh, that has to do with the, the, the larger uh, uh, implications for Africa, because I know Muammar Gaddafi uh, you know, was a you know a major force within the, this uh, African Union, a kind of a a pan African force, I guess you might say, and and now that's pretty much demolished. So, what what kind of uh, in terms of a, a pan African force, you know, how, how can the uh, opposition to this? I mean, the 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 you know, no, this was the very first Africom. Uh, uh, operation. How can uh, this uh, resistance to uh, AFRICOM and, and to the other uh, American and European powers uh, form themselves uh, with the with, with the current situation in Libya? Yeah, you're right. This was the first uh, full blown uh, AFRICOM project. Uh, was the counter revolution in Libya. Uh, and they were also involved in the overthrow of uh, Laurent Gbagbo in uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Ivory Coast, uh, which was also a failure um, because uh, they took him to the uh, International Criminal Court and they could not build a case against him. And uh, now they're, they're negotiating uh, his return. Uh, but uh, the question is, uh, the African governments and the people, the mass organizations, have to take a, a firm position against uh, the African command, the U.S. African command, uh, because they were always uh, interfering uh, in a very negative and counter-revolutionary manner. So uh, the AFRICOM has been a total failure. It has created more instability in Africa, uh, which rationalizes its uh, continued existence in the country. Now, under the uh, Jamaharia system in Libya, uh, they were leaders uh, in the demands for African unity. In fact, the uh, transition from the Organization of African Unity, which was formed in 1963 in Ethiopia, uh, with people like Kwame Nkrumah and Ali Selassie, Secretary Ray, Modibo Keita, uh, Julius Dereri, and so forth, uh, there was a transition to the African Union and the uh, initial discussions began in CERT, Libya, uh, which was the home of Gaddafi, in 1999 at the uh, CERT uh, summit. Uh, and they issued a CERT declaration, uh, which made the transition by 2002 to the African Union, which has much stronger uh, resolutions and protocols related to African unity, even though it's by no means uh, close at this point because of uh, the continued dependency economically and, and politically on imperialism. Uh, but that was a contribution that Gaddafi made. It was a continuation 
of the work of uh, the founders of the OEU, uh, people such as Nkrumah and uh, Sekretore and Modibo Kato and Nereri and so forth. And uh, also uh, today there's uh, the African Continental Free Trade Area, uh, which uh, is a framework you know, for the creation of greater unity in terms of uh, a single currency and enhancement of trade uh, between different African states. So, uh, but in order for these uh, uh, plans to be realized, imperialism uh, and imperialist militarism have to be defeated on the continent. And that, that is the only real way forward uh, for the continent and it's 1.3 billion people. Okay, well, Abayomi Ezekiwi, it's really a pleasure having you back on uh, on this show. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, for uh, being willing to a willing guest, and and thank you as well for uh, your regular work at Pan African Newswire. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, thank you so much. I've been speaking with uh, Abayomi Azikiwe. He's the editor of Pan African Newswire and also a regular contributor to Global Research. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. For two months during the summer of 2011, Mahdi Darius Nazamroya was stationed in Libya and functioning as a correspondent of both Pacifica Radio's flashpoints and of Global Research. Upon his return to North America, the 29-year-old relayed alarming details of what happened in the country. He wrote several articles about the attack on Libya and did media appearances. Mahdi Darius Nazamroya is an interdisciplinary sociologist, award-winning author, and noted geopolitical analyst. He was awarded the uh, prize of the Mexican Press Club for his outstanding achievements and writings as a war correspondent for the independent media. Global Research NewsHour got hold of him for an interview. But first we wanted to re-air part of his interview for CKUW's Warning Shots. Here's a couple of excerpts of that conversation as carried out by CKUW journalist Scott Price. What kind of activities, uh, well, what kind of things were they doing? What kind of people are these the, the, the rebel forces? Well, the rebels, uh, one thing that I saw with my own eyes, and I actually take, is they were involved in destabilization efforts, like attacks to cause fear. And they were involved in targeted attacks against regime officials or, or figures uh, of power. And they actually one night attacked uh, one of the hotels I was at. Before the Tripoli, so, Tripoli so-called fall, they did that. And, and they, they actually uh, blew up some bombs, like they used detonated bombs made out of uh, something crude, almost like TNT. Uh, I think they call it, it's called gelatine, and the Libyans called it, I believe. They blew some up around the place they were going to target, and, and, and this was a danger to civilians. They did it regardless, and then they attacked with their uh, rifles, and they shot at the hotel, and there were civilians in the way, and that's one of the things they, that they did. And I'm talking about the Radisson on the Mediterranean coast. They, they, this is what they did at the Radisson Blue. Um, they also, uh, they were putting uh, explosives in, in government ministries in public places, like the Justice Ministry, for example, had an explosive put on terrorist attacks. They did. They also used RPGs uh, for, 
for attempted assassinations. Also, once again, they attack hotels like the Corinthian. Mm-hmm. Uh, just before I think they attacked the Radisson, there was an attempt on a government official's life at the Corinthian using RPGs. And the Libyans were very sure that NATO's intelligence services were involved in this. Uh, so, so this is the stuff they were doing in Tripoli. And NATO was helping them by also attacking any electricity infrastructure. So they would be dark at night in Tripoli, and they were using the blanket of night to attack. Um, that's why the Libyans, uh, and this caused a lot of fear and psychological uh, trauma, and the Libyans were afraid. Of course, fear is a big enemy in a state in a state of war. It's what could cause people to, to defect or, or to run away or, or to be helpless, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, fear was part of the psychological war. So the Libyans, what they did is, because of the attack on electricity infrastructure, and it was deliberate and calculated, it was part of the military strategy, which once again, I want to point out, has nothing to do with humanitarianism or a, a no-fly zone, which by definition is defensive, not offensive. Anyways, um, so they, they were attacking the electricity infrastructure, and the Libyans, uh, uh, what they did is they, they, they stopped uh, the electricity from being used uh, during the morning. So there was no electricity in the morning, so they could have it at night, so there would be stability. So this is the st- type of stuff that was ongoing. And of course, I saw refugees coming from the east, from the east of Libya, eastern Libya, which is called Cyrenaica. That's the old name of the region during the monarchical times and ancient times. Uh, they were coming, and they, they had terrible stories to tell about Benghazi and, and what was going on in the east. Of course, the Libyans were gathering a lot of evidence about what's going on in the East. There was rape victims, gang rape victims who came, who were brutalized and victimized. You know, not by Libyan, not just by Libyan rebels, but by foreigners. These, a lot of these people were not Libyan. I want to emphasize this: a lot of the people in the so-called rebels or insurgents ranks were non-Libyans. They were Arabs from other countries or non-Arabs. Okay, so this is very important. If this is a revolution, you do not need these type of people in your ranks. And there was a lot of Egyptians, for example, and people from other parts of the world, including Afghanistan, war-torn Afghanistan, who came there. And uh, they, they were involved in beheadings there, cutting people's arms off, mutilating them, uh, impaling, th- these type of disgusting things, which actually some of the evidence is very available. It's been available for months on the Internet about what's been going on. But instead, people focus on the lies of Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya and, and the misinformation that CNN gives and the BBC gives. That was Mahdi Nazamroya talking with Scott Price back in September of 2011. Here he is now speaking to the Global Research News Hour about his thoughts 10 years later. Looking back on what happened, it, it's very clear that this was an unjust war. Uh, nobody should... Uh, uh, have any illusions about that, and I don't think anybody does. Um, I think to put NATO's war against the uh, Libyan Arab Jamaria within uh, the framework of a historical context and analysis, I'd have to say that this was clearly uh, part of a new scramble for Africa uh, that started with... uh, um, with uh, uh, a colonial uh, objective of of controlling that part of the world, of breaking a sovereign state, of uh, of basically uh, uh, 
pirating and uh, looting uh, a wealthy, uh, a relatively wealthy country. And, and um, I just think of uh, what was called the Great Depression in the past, and in retrospect, what historians uh, call the Long Depression, which hit uh, Europe, North America from 1873 to 1893. And uh, that um, depression or economic hard period was what led to Europeans pushing for direct control of Africa. And I think that this is what, in, to an extent, in part, was one of the reasons for the push into Libya and other countries in the world. And I think that even today what we're seeing, uh, all this uh, fear-mongering against China and uh, all these measures, uh, health measures, public health measures, are an extension of this economic decline or maybe economic restructuring in so-called Western core countries, like in the European Union, in Canada, the United States, as well as some non-Western countries that are part of that capitalist core uh i i think that uh that's the context uh i look at it mm-hmm. from a lot of things have also changed interesting things like you know new alliances and, and for example turkey and russia getting closer on certain things of course there's a rivalry but if i can use the, the popular uh term from vernacular frenemies you know friends and enemies uh You can see both the Russian Federation and Turkey are active players in Libya. To an extent, Iran is, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Well, Qatar has been pushed, but Egypt, uh, France. And then there's this push for the oil. And and the Turks are trying to make a power grab uh, with this route, you know, and the the, the different fractions and alliances have been readjusted on the ground in the country. Uh, So it's been very dynamic. We shouldn't be fooled. The country's still been weakened. It was balkanized. Uh, that's why you have different factions and basically de facto governments. Uh, uh, aside from the de jure legal government, UN-backed government that Turkey supports in the capital, Tripoli, in uh, northwestern uh, Libya on the Mediterranean coast. Besides that, there's other factions in the mountains and in the east. And they're supported by external powers. So, I mean, the country was divided and, you know, the intelligence analysts in the United States and Washington, D.C., the Beltway there, and in other parts of the uh, world, specifically, I mean, other parts of the countries that are within the NATO alliance, they all uh, knew that this would be an outcome. And they still supported these forces that, uh, I mean forces that they portrayed as largely un- being under the blanket of some democratic movement, liberal democratic movement. Uh, they portrayed them as these dem- uh, freedom fighters, dem- Democrats, uh, which they weren't. Major- many weren't. I'm not saying there were not people. I'm not saying that people with democratic liberal, liberal tendencies uh, were not... Uh, were absent from that type of a movement. There was some people like that, but um, largely not, especially on the, the fighters on the ground. Uh, um, Marty, the uh, 
Yeah. I was wondering, I mean, the fact is that uh, when they went in, there was uh, a lot of uh, a development of, of a compassionate message, you know, it would be a humanitarian efforts, you know, uh, and I mean, I mean, there was a, a certain amount of the whole uh, Arab Spring thing, but this push by human rights organizations, uh, I mean, what what was the basis for that? I mean, how, how did that aspect uh, manage to push this thing in a certain direction? And, 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 and what was the outcome at the end of the day? I mean, what, what were they saying then and what are they saying today? in terms of the human rights record? Well, I mean, the entire project, the entire war, the entire uh, framework and the rhetoric, and it was rhetoric, was uh, two-faced, hypocritical. Because it was never about helping the Libyan people. And uh, it was never about... Um, Human rights and the Human Rights Council, uh, and uh, like we we have the records of what happened in the Human Rights Council, how they used this ND, NGO complex, a group of NGOs basically to vilify Libya, and they broke procedures. I wrote about this like in depth about the role of the NGOs and what type of NGOs were involved who were just used to target specific countries and use human rights as a shield to justify war and the actual, ironically, the actual violation of human rights. So, I mean, that's what happened in the United Nations office in Geneva, uh, somewhere that I actually went <laughs> a few years after the war to speak about Syria. but. Um, I mean, uh, the, the, the role was to use this framework, this discourse, this liberal discourse of uh, 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 human, this humanitarian liberal discourse of helping others. We, the responsibility to protect R2P. We have to go in there to help. This is about the people. I mean, th this type of dis dishonest discourse is going on, whether it's fighting terrorism or law and order or public health. Uh, they're always using some type of uh, greater good con uh, framework to justify very nefarious, selfish, uh, and and uh, projects that aren't about the greater good whatsoever. And, and that, what that, that's what the, it down. What, what were some of the maybe the, the a couple of the key organizations that were pushing this thing through? Well, uh, key organizations would include the. Uh, National uh, Endowment for Democracy support. Uh, there was, uh, of course, there was um, several Libyan groups outside of the country that were part of this. Uh, in fact, one of the one of the figures in one of these Libyan groups that was tied to the U.S. supported opposition ended up becoming the ambassador of Libya right after the war, and he admits that the whole thing. I mean, on tape, he admits that the whole thing was fabrication. It was all fabricated, and this was used to justify uh, attacking a sovereign state, removing its government, and, and basically what amounts to a war crime. Mm -hmm. yeah. In particular, and I think this is a point that needs to be drawn out, 
the, what's happened to the the black the African uh, migrants, the the black migrants in particular, how, I mean, they've gone through torture, they've gone through murder, and slavery is is back as well. Uh, how, how did these events happen? Was was it? I mean, it was partly it was the outcome of the media itself, right? Or, or like how how is it? Is escalated to the point where you're having this brutality against, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the country now. Um, okay, well, let's let's mention a few things about Libya. The country um, is, uh, I mean, it it it's a country that's always had uh, uh, various people. It's at a crossroads, and and. Um, a certain portion of the population are black-skinned Libyans. Uh, all Libyans are African. Um, by the sheer fact that Libya is in the African continent. Um, the, the issue that you brought up, which is very important, uh, it, it has several factors. You brought up migrants. Well, yeah, Libya was filled with migrants from other North African and Sub-Saharan African countries. Uh, these uh, um, uh, migrants were targeted as part of this discourse that was propagated by Western media. It was alienating and in and, and very racialized and racist terms, uh, making it look like anybody who's black-skinned is not Libyan and has to come from outside and was brought there as basically a mercenary against the Libyan people, which is not true. Many of these so-called uh, Africans, meaning people with black skin, basically, I'm saying so-called, as in quotation marks, emphasis on this, were Libyans. They were Libyan nationals. It was disgraceful, uh, but the media was part of this discourse uh, disgusting discourse, making them look like foreigners in their own country, and uh, propagating hate and supporting hate, supporting rumors that anybody with black skin uh, had to be a supporter of Muammar Gaddafi, and basically giving a, a green light to people, right? People that would blame them, scapegoat them. And of course, this led to these problems. Uh, in terms of People that aren't Libyan with black skin, well, they were coming to work in Libya. And, uh, I mean, the situation in Libya also not only destabilized Libya and the neighboring countries, but a much broader region of the world uh, in Africa, like the Sahel area, was destabilized. Weapons started going from there to Mali, and problems uh, started sprouting up in Chad, economic problems, famine problems lack of economic uh, development, uh, cr crime, lack of border control. I mean, there was always problems with lack of border control. And to be frank, uh, even uh, form some slavery uh, was already existent in, in, in the southern, south of Libya. Uh, not Libya, I mean south of the, the state of Libya's borders. Uh, but this problem just uh, uh, exploded after this. And um, this has led to more people 
trying to go through a no man's land and cross through Libya to Europe, because Libya is also at the crossroads in the Mediterranean. So it, 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 it's led to this two-pronged problem where people with so-called so-called Africans, they're all Africans, I want to emphasize that. Anybody who's living is an African, regardless of their skin color, and um, uh, are trying to leave their country or are internally displaced or become refugees. And at the same time, you have people in other parts of Africa becoming refugees, internally displaced, or migrants or have economic problems and are seeking to go northward across the Mediterranean. And, and this was, there was a domino effect approach here. And then uh, the United States, Britain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, they all had a, a role to, to play with this. And part of that was through their support with, for the, um, uh, this, this, this war and, and uh, this uh, war crime. I think war crimes, this was a large war crime uh, that took place. And I want to point out one thing. The United States already had plans uh, under uh, Robert Gates before he was U.S. Secretary of Defense in the Obama government. Uh, when he was part of the National Security Council, he, he drafted plans, um, uh, secret plans, uh, only two dozen officials were part of it. Uh, it had two subcomponents. Sub one was called Tulip, and the other one was called Rose. Tulip was uh, the code name for CIA covert operations to overthrow Colonel Muammar Gaddafi and his government by supporting uh, exile groups and countries such as Egypt that wanted Muammar Gaddafi removed from power. Rose was the code name for a surprise attack to be carried out on Libya using uh, the territory of U.S. allies like Egypt. And, and at the time, Italy wasn't included, but like Italy, and uh, supported by American air power. And this all played out. This is exactly what they did. So they actually took a, a, a few years, but... Uh, more than a, de a few decades, they actually ended up implementing Tulip and Rose, where we have this, these Libyan exiles, and we have US, a U.S. military uh, campaign against the uh, Jamaria. Uh, maybe I should uh, just, uh, I guess, finish off uh, with one more question, uh, in that, you know, you, you were in there, you, you met the Libyan people back in 2011, and I'm wondering now that there's been this influx of rebels and, and other factors that have just, you know, basically unraveled so much of the government and, and so much within the Libyan society, is there a hope of them pulling this back together, or, or is it pretty much a, a lost cause? I mean, what do you think about that? I don't think there's any lost causes. I mean, no. this is human history. No, this is human history. People will per persevere. And one thing you will notice is all the people who make these plans for regime change and social engineering of countries, whether it's Iraq or the former Yugoslavia or Ukraine or uh, uh, Syria or Yemen or Sudan, their plans never go the way they want it. 
I mean, there's too many factors and multiple, there's multiple uh, uh, um, players. So they never have control. For example, the United States went into Iraq in 2003, the Anglo-American, illegal Anglo-American invasion of Iraq. Uh, they would have never thought that it would empower Iran. They didn't think that. Like, you know, they didn't understand. They didn't think that these forces aligned to Iran would take over, or that the Baghdad of today would be as it is today politically uh, and in terms of alliance uh, tied to Russia, Syria, Iran. They didn't think of those things. I mean, they might have, but they didn't calculate that it would end up like that. So their calculations never go through, and that's history. I mean, they can destroy, they can uh, uh, they can uh, connive and, and plan, but never goes through the exact way they want it. Uh, they have managed to destroy. They have managed to undo things. And as I said, they've implemented Tulip and Rose. But uh, uh, history history shows us that uh, 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 things don't go as planned. And, and many forces are involved. Many counter forces are involved. So uh, uh, I think there is hope in Libya. There is hope. And maybe you might find uh, that the government that comes in the future will not be a puppet government, will not be aligned uh, uh, to foreign, uh, the United States or other foreign powers. That's possible. That's possible. At the end of the day, we all have to hope for the best in that country. We have to be realistic. I mean, it's, there's a big mess. Uh, but people there have to come together because I think there has to be a relative amount of unity for them to pull through uh, and to have sovereignty and, and agency. Uh, I, I think that we have to be fair and honest. Uh, people uh, are complex, uh, but they can pull through. Uh, if, if, if countries like Russia or Japan or Germany or uh, uh, um, countries like uh, uh, Iran. Historically, I'm not talking about contemporary times. I'm talking about uh, after great upheavals or China uh, have come through and they, they're still around. Uh, the same thing with Libya. I mean, Libya will continue to be there. I'm sad to say that a lot of it has been... Uh, uh, it's seen tough times, but better days will come ahead. That doesn't mean that we should just uh, ignore what's happening and, and say, let's hope for the best without doing anything. Uh, but I, I think that, that, that this is uh, not the end. This is just uh, part of history. And we have to also remember all the lives lost and the human suffering. I mean, uh, even though I'm talking about history, the, there's real stories and, and you have to think of the... the, the the peoples and the people on an individual basis as well. I have to say something from a personal uh, standpoint. Uh, I was in Libya for several months, uh, probably for a good duration of the war. I don't remember if it was most of the war, uh, and definitely through some of the hardest fighting in the war. Uh, it did have an impact on me, of course, uh, being in the war, uh, being shot at, uh, listening to the bombs, uh, there's the psychological aspects, of course, uh, the stress on myself and others. Um, 
but I, there's a lot of memories that, that I have uh, that I'd like to share. For example, um, there's certain times where there's people on different sides that are not all bad, and there's people on different sides that can be bad. And uh, it's very easy to judge other people, but when, when you really have to, you really have to remember that uh, it's not a black and white story, especially when it comes to individuals. There was good people on both sides, uh, for sure. Uh, of course, people were manipulated to fight. Um, and that's one thing that I, I, I remember. The other thing that I remember is that uh, the role that the media played was despicable. Uh, absolutely despicable. Seeing it firsthand myself uh, was despicable. Um, it's, it's part of a war machine, for sure. The, the, the media complex it, the, uh, is re a big part of the war. Uh, the other thing that I, I, I remember is how helpful some people were. There was a lot of good people, and you saw even putting their lives at risk to make sure foreigners like me and were you know, given some type of hospitality. For example, our hotel was being, uh, electricity was gone and we're being attacked. And, and there were still people like the cook, you know, they still trying to do their job and people taking risks, you know, things that they need, they didn't need to do to uh, uh, make sure we, we live, uh, make sure things are more comfortable for us, I guess. Not that we asked them to do those things. So those are things, some, some personal things that I, I remember. I wish I'd, I could have done some things in retrospect differently. Uh, and, of course, I've made mistakes too. And, and, and at the time, during the stress of uh, it all, might have uh, uh, not seen some things. Clearly, I, I, I recall that as well. Uh, but, uh, those are some of my memories I'd like to share, or feelings. Thank you very much, Mahdi. Okay. I have a... Day. <laughs> We've been speaking with Mahdi Nazanroya. He was a long-standing relations with Global Research, and he was in the country of Libya 10 years ago. Thanks again to guest Mahdi Darius Nazanroya, an interdisciplinary sociologist, award-winning author, and noted geopolitical analyst. He was in Libya reporting on events as they took place 10 years ago. Next week, the third in our three-part series called The Eyes of March, where we will examine the wars in Iraq, Yugoslavia, and beyond. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.